Good morning. Um, we're continuing our study of Colossians here. And last week we finished um, on our outline here, C2, where we talked about where true knowledge comes from. And recall really the sum of that was is that Paul stresses that true knowledge is from God, but ultimately revealed to us in Christ. And that Paul declares that the Colossians, for their spiritual well-being, shouldn't be relying on the heretics um, that we've been talking, but should rely only on Christ, Christ alone in His Word. So we're going to move on today in C3. So before we do, why don't we start with our invocation in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so today we're still in this next section, session, section C3, which we're in our main exposition here of Paul's letter. And then uh, C3 is a focus, then we, we move from true knowledge in Christ to where now gonna, Paul is going to expound on what is the fullness of Christ. And we jumped into that a little bit last week uh, with verse 6. Uh, we went through six through nine, but just just to recap, recall in this section, as I said last time, and most commentators say that this is arguably one of the most, um, it's the heart and center of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and really because it focuses on two things. First, it has a Christological component, which is really focused on uh, Christ and his work, the first, and then second, is soterological, which is really concerned with how man is saved, our salvation. So as we've been seeing throughout this letter, and particularly here, we'll be learning more about uh, Christ and his work and then what that means uh, for salvation. And again, as we talked about last week, what that is. I'm not sure what that is. Got a little. I think we might have a problem with our air conditioning here. There it goes. That's a little better. Um, okay. So we also talked about last week at the beginning of this where Paul writes about how we are to be rooted up and built by Christ. I spent some time on that. Um, that's in verse 7. And we analyze that language and, and really built up and rooted in Christ is that, that we're, we're built up and rooted on what Christ gives us through his gifts, which are the means of grace, which come to us through his word and then his sacraments. Um, and then in response to that, we talked about how we are giving thanksgiving to God in verse 7. And I went into detail pretty much about where we do our thanksgiving mainly, and we went and discussed worship. We read a little bit out of our Lutheran service book, our hymnal about what, uh, what true Christian worship is, a worship of, 
uh, gospel-centered, where everything comes to us in the worship service as a gift from God. That's the main part of worship. But then in response, kind of as pers- uh, passive pers- participants, uh, we then think and praise God for all the gifts that he's given us, especially through his son. Okay, so today now, if we can, we will start on verse 9, where we picked up. And again, in your Lutheran study Bible, you can see in verse 6, it talks about alive with Christ. Um, I've labeled it as the fullness of Christ, but the same thing. So in verse 9 here, um, we read this. Um, Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, a lot of stuff here. So fullness here, the Greek word is pleroma. So as a part of the Colossian heresy, there again, as I've talked, there was a general belief that the material world was just inherently evil. Nothing material um, was good. Um, So the hope of this heresy was that the true followers of God could escape their fleshly uh, material existence and then be reunited with a spirit in the spiritual realm. And for them... This was the fullness of the deity, okay? But Paul, against this, uh, against this false teaching, he asserts that, no, the fullness of deity does not um, exist in this spirit world where we try to ascend. But, of course, the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ. And deity here denotes God's divine essence or Godhead. In our study note here, in verse uh, 229, uh, does a very good job. Fullness um, says, a technical term among the Colossian heretics and later Gnosticism for a number of pseudo-divine beings that supposedly emanated from God, which were angels, rulers, authorities, throne, dominions. Against this, Paul says, everything that is of God dwells in Christ. And then, of course, it mentions that we also confess this in the Nicene Creed, right? Where we say, Christ is very God, a very God, being of one substance with the Father. So that's what Paul's saying here, that our fullness doesn't come from this spiritual angels, any of that, but it's in a concrete, living Jesus Christ. And that's where our fullness comes from, and that's where the deity of, of, of a God exists The deity is in Christ himself. And we talked about that before earlier with the two natures of Christ where he is both fully God, 100% God, but at the same time fully man, 100% man. And we can't explain that. It's beyond our reason, but we take God's word as it is and we know that, that Christ is fully God and that's what Paul is saying here. So then Paul also says, though, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Paul then says in verse 10, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So filled in him. In him, filled in him means we are filled in Christ. And this is again the person of Christ. All the the fullness of of the deity dwells in this one person of Christ who is fully God and fully man. But then Paul makes this um, statement that, or Paul here is making it clear that God fully 
took on human flesh in Jesus' own incarnation. Again, this is against the heresy of this spiritual. This means that God's creation of flesh and blood um, in Jesus is not inherently evil. In fact, human nature is sanctified by the divine Jesus' incarnation. And when we look at this uh, in our commentary, which I'm, I'm using here to help uh, prepare for this class, Dr. Dietering, he says this about this, filled in him in Christ. This is an excellent quote. Dr. Dieterding states this, Everything that makes God to be God is to be found in Jesus Christ. So it's in Jesus that we find out and it's revealed everything about God here in Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying when he says that for him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily and then we have been filled in him. So when we are filled in him, it's not that we do this by becoming spiritual as the Gnostics believed, but we have a special relationship with Christ. It's a relationship that's given us as a gift in faith through our baptism. And then in him then, through our baptism, we, we also dwell in the fullness of the deity because we are filled um, with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding um, through faith. Uh, he also talks about uh, then he says uh, Christ in verse, nine, in verse 10 here, who is the head of all rule and authority. And I don't think that needs any further explanation. It's very straightforward. Christ, then, is the head and rule of all authority. Okay, that's uh, verses 9 and 10. So now we're going to move on to 11 through 13, and I'll read those three, and then we'll go back uh, through that. So verse uh, 11, chapter 2, verses 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, so we see this language here of of circumcision. So the heretics in Colossae, they made um, much ways of escaping the influence of the material world, the flesh, which they regarded as inherently evil. But what's funny here is Paul, with a touch of irony, indicates that these people still uh, uh, participated and advocated for circumcision, but by their own standards, circumcision was really inadequate for it did not put off all of the flesh. Um, So that's Paul's making uh, kind of a a pun here, fun out of them, that they they want to escape all all this material world but and, and rely on circumcision, but then circumcision does not really uh, put off all the flesh. So in contrast to this, then, Paul comes up with a, a new term here, the circumcision of Christ. And what does he mean by that? 
So the circumcision of Christ in this sense, it really does away with the entirety of the flesh. Um, so let's talk about circumcision. The Colossian heresy included this kind of Jewish tendency, including the requirement to be circumcised. But while circumcision has been given by God as a sign of his covenant promises, that covenant was then fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Therefore, to require circumcision was not only an unneeded ritual for salvation, it argu arguably at this time too drew people away from the gift of salvation in Christ. So that's what, what, what Paul is seeing by the circumcision of Christ. Um, it's the, Paul notes that the followers of Jesus have been given a superior circumcision, not done by human hands, but done through holy baptism. And we see that, uh, which we covered in verse uh, 212, which says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So you see this kind of play on words, what Paul is using with circum circumcision, this concept of flesh versus spiritual. Uh, Paul's kind of poking fun at them for the circumcision, that circumcision really isn't what uh, takes, uh, is not a full um, cutting off of the flesh. And again, the flesh being human sin, our original sin, but that was fully cut off through the circumcision of Christ which is in our baptism. So, back to baptism. I know we've talked about them. But uh, bab this connection between baptism and then this circumcision of Christ, um, I want to bring up an interesting topic here. It points to the baptism of infants as a normal, ordinary practice among these New Testament Christians. So, why so? In the Old Testament, God had directed his people to perform the circumcision of males at the age of eight days. And we can recall that from passages in Genesis and Leviticus. And of course, Jesus, um, at eight years old, he was circumcised. Um, we get that for, from Philippians 3, 5. So in, within this context, Paul is, is really taking for granted um, and not mentioning infants, but is that infants was a part of the practices of circumcision uh, that was mandated by God. By the same token then, he would assume the necessity of the administration of the circumcision of Christ to infants just as to adult converts. So when he's speaking this, there's no, there's no separation of, of older, younger. Um, this circumcision of Christ, which is baptism, then is for all. And on that I thought I, we just kind of take a look at this infant baptism. I know it comes up a lot. And, and where I like to go in the catechism, let's kind of read a couple things here. So on infant baptism. So first of all, the question asked is why should babies also be baptized? And if we go to Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verse 19. 
Well, it started, it, this is the Great Commission. You know. Well, it started at 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what, when, when, when Matthew writes of all nations, baptizing all nations, and of course babies are included in that. Um, also we know that babies are sinful and need what baptism promises, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Catechism then goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is able to work faith in babies and cites Psalm 22, verses 9 through 10, which reads, yet you, are he, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So the Holy Spirit can and does work faith in babies. And there's also a, a number of sub, uh, other passages here. So... Uh, on this topic of faith in babies, faith is not to be confused with intellectual ability. Those who argue for believers' baptism and reject the baptism of infants um, often wrongly maintain that one, infants are not guilty or accountable for sin or able to commit sinful acts. Two, faith is a human decision that infants cannot make. And three, baptism is primarily our promise to God rather than God's promise to us. Not one of these views is based on Scripture. So the Catechism says, Parents should not deny baptism to their children any more than they should deny them other vital needs. The necessity of baptism, however, does not mean that children who are stillborn or die before they are brought to baptism are lost. We commend such children to the gracious care of their Maker and Redeemer, trusting His mercy and love, even when we do not understand his will or his work. So it's great stuff there. I know I'm, uh, no one disagrees with that, but thought that uh, in the commentaries, uh, the commentators notes this about when Paul is discussing baptism. It's not, uh, Paul doesn't limit that to adults. It's baptism, baptism in Christ, and it's for all, no matter the age. So, um, any questions on that or anything further to, to add? I know we, we all know that that's an issue within other um, denominations, and I think we probably all dealt with it. But again, that's a simple answer in, Ma in Matthew 28, which says, baptize all nations. It doesn't limit to all nations, only those over a certain age. So baptism is for all. And that's cool here, how Paul connects this with, with the circumcision of Christ, and using it really as a word play against these um, heretics here who hate the flesh. Okay, again, then more talk. Let's go to Colossians 2.12. Again, we're seeing this baptism repeated over and over throughout this book. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And of course, if I, I've said this before, Paul is just reiterating what he's already written to the Romans, uh, Romans 6, 3 through 7. I've read it once, I'm going to read, I'll read it again. 
uh, Romans 6, 3 through 7 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And again, that's what Paul's saying here again in verse 12 when he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Um, by baptism, so we are made participants with Christ in what he did for our redemption so that the benefits of his work in history became our own. Uh, just So Paul mentions the burial of Christ, and this is to confirm the reality of Christ's death. He speaks of our burial with Christ in baptism to confirm the reality of our participation in his death. So then, no, Paul also says, then we've been buried, but in which you were also raised with him. So you were raised indicates that the baptized, you are raised. It's a present reality. We are already now partakers of eternal life. This is this now, not yet um, conundrum we see throughout Scripture. It is now. Now we are raised, but then not yet. We're not fully raised. We haven't come to the day, uh, the last day where Christ will come and truly uh, raise us out of the grave. And as I've said before, the day of judgment, it's not our day of judgment, the day of judgment for those that don't believe. The scripture tells us that we'll be, the believers will be separated. They won't be judged. So we were already judged. We were already judged in our baptism. So we have no fear of the um, judgment day because we've already been judged and we've already been judged not guilty. But you were raised, it's this now and not yet. We currently are raised, but we also wait for the day of the resurrection on the last day. Okay, verse 13. Verse 13 here. 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So we're dead in our trespasses before uh, we are saved, right? And we've, we've heard that before in Ephesians 2.1. Paul also says this. Two. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we've heard uh, Paul use this language before. So this is what Paul is talking about to the Colossians, that this was, their, again, talking about their former status, which they were dead 
but from which God rescued them by way of their baptism. So they were dead then in two things. That one, that they lacked true spiritual life, and two, that they were doomed to the eternal death in hell. They were completely helpless to do anything to remedy their situation. So this language is where, you know, is certain proof that really we do nothing, right, to contribute to our salvation or how we saved. If Paul multiple, multiple times says that we're dead in our trespasses, when a person is dead, what can they do? They cannot, a dead man cannot decide to be saved, right? It's Christ and Christ only. So this is what Paul's driving at here, that you are dead in the sense that you don't have a spiritual life. You are doomed to hell, and there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. only way you can save that you are saved, that you're rescued by God, and God does this as a gift, nothing that we do or we choose to do. But it's all gifts that come to us from his word and in baptism and then continues to keep us in that uh, through the Lord's Supper. So Paul designate the cause then of the Colossians' spiritual deadness, both literally talking about trespasses, which is sin, but then metaphorically and figuratively when he, said, when he talks about your dead and your trespasses and then in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And we talked about that earlier, what that meant, uncircumcision of your flesh is also sin. Um, uncircumcision, I, I mentioned it in a bit, but let's talk about it a little bit more because Paul continues to bring up circumcision and uncircumcision. So we know that the, in the Old Testament, an uncircumcised male could not participate in any of God's blessings, such as the Passover meal, uh, commemorating the redemption of Israel. So such person then, if you were uncircumcised, would be cut off from God's people. So when Paul uses this uncircumcision of the flesh, it's the same thing. Cut off, that it's really that we're cut off because of the corruption of our human nature, and this is our original sin. So trespasses and uncircumcision here denote sin, just not as a collection of our misdeeds, but also the total corruption of one's being and estrangement of God. And this is original sin, which we've discussed many times in this, in this class. So that was Paul talking again to the Colossians about what they once were before, but now with Christ, we see in verse 2.13, uh, I just said, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that was your former status, but now um, to the Colossians and to us, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So the Colossians here are made alive with him, together with him. Their rescue was entirely the work of God through Christ. Now in verse 2.12, we talked about how that the Christians were, through baptism, they were, we are raised with him uh, through faith. But then also now in 13, Paul uses another term, alive. So he uses the terms raise and alive. And they're both synonymous. Both raised and alive here are applied to what we are 
through our baptism. We are raised and we are alive. In baptism, the believer was made a participant with Christ and everything the Father accomplished through Christ's resurrection to life. Okay, so what also did, does Christ do for us and did for us in verse 14? We read, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, thus he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is this uh, kind of an account, accounting type look at it. We all know what a debt is and what it means to pay a debt. And Paul here is indicating that this debt or this bill of debt is an obligation that must be made uh, to God to satisfy divine justice. But here the forgiveness of this debt is an erasure of the entire bill. God himself forgives it through Christ's death on the cross. I'm trying to come up with an example of this. This is the whole atonement. When Christ uh, was nailed to the cross, we can... Look at a picture of a whiteboard where we use a dry erase marker and all your sins are written on that whiteboard. That whiteboard was also nailed to the cross with Jesus. And in Jesus' death, um, that whiteboard was a completely erased clean. All the sins are clean. This is what, it, what Paul is talking about, canceling this record of debt. Our record of sin is completely wiped out and completely gone. Um, and this is what we confess though in the second article of the creed. And when in the catechism, when we look at the second article, when Luther asks, what does this mean? We say this, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. Here's the accounting language. Purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from all the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent sufferings and death. So this is the atonement. We can see the atonement um, as this canceling of debt. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 14 um, when he says, by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with all its legal demands. Any questions on that or anything follow up on that? Um, so, yes. I was going to comment on uh, this, uh, the significance of in our baptism we are put to death. I never understood the uh, significance of that, that a, uh, I think it says in Romans 6-7, the body of sin was brought to nothing. So, death kills sin or removes sin, and and we we know we we're struggling now in a body that we confess our sin, and until we physically die, uh, we will have a physical body which tends to want to sin. But it sounds like with this understanding from Romans six, uh, spiritually, when we were baptized. Our death in our baptism that we share with Christ brought sin to nothing there. So that, that's, I mean, it's just a, uh, 
an understanding which I never understood before totally uh, the significance of that, that, yeah, we're raised with Christ in our baptism, but that death in our baptism has spiritually brought us, brought the body of sin in us to nothing. That's exactly right, and that's that's the whole point of that whole yeah, yeah. the reason that we we die in our baptism. We're we're dying to to sin, and and then um, there there is no record of sin. You know, it's how it's personally applied. This accounting, this atonement, then Christ's death, then that erased your sin. Then it's personally brought to you in your death and your baptism. That's how it's personally given to you. It's the means for which that debt is canceled. Your debt is canceled in your death and your baptism. That's exactly right. And that's our new man. And that's our righteousness. We have the robe of righteousness. But it, it was always, uh, you know, that crossover to the old man in us. We're still fighting the flesh. And, but that's in our physical, in this right. body. So right. understanding that difference was very helpful. That's, that's right. And, you know, Luther says that every day, you know, you... you you die a new death every day when you when you confess your sins. Um, that we every day have to constantly drown the old man, and that's the baptism language. So that is a constant struggle that we have. But that's our sinful flesh. But spiritually, like we said, uh, spiritually we've already we've already died to, to to that. But we do remain we do remain sinful by nature, and it's because then daily in our sanctified life. Uh, we daily rely on our baptism to daily drown the old man till the new man can rise up. So that's good. That's great, great language there. Do we have another question back there? Okay, good, good. So continuing baptism stuff. We can't get enough of baptism. And again, as I said at the beginning, we're going to see themes come up over and over and over. And now we've seen baptism come up over and over and over. Uh, which is great to continue to get to talk about what baptism is and what it gives to us. Okay. So now uh, we talked about in 14, canceling the debt and everything, the atonement, and that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay. Then in verse 15, this is, this is kind of interesting. Paul says, He, meaning Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities... And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A little confusing here, but let's kind of tackle this here. So he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. What does this mean? Well, the, the rulers and authorities here uh, are, commentators say, it's really the forces of evil led by Satan and sometimes referred to by titles such as rulers or authorities. So we've seen this before. I think our study note here on page 2046 in, in the Lutheran Study Bible, if you guys have it, uh, 215 does a really good job with this too. Rulers and authority. What does that mean? Um, these, are, these are created by God. Okay, This is kind of a left and right hand kingdom talk. Our rulers and authority. Remember in the left hand kingdom? Uh, it is still God's kingdom, but he created the left-hand kingdom. And so these rulers and authority, they are created by God and yet often are corrupted by sin. They can be, the rulers and authorities can be personal, um, such as angels, or impersonal, such as governments, economic systems, educational institutions. 
They also might be demons masquerading as idols or false gods. So that's what Paul is saying here, that Christ then disarms these forces of evil um, at his death and resurrection. And then what does this mean then? He disarms, but then Paul goes on to say that he put them to open shame. Now there's some debate within uh, the commentaries with what this means, but Dr. Dietering, I get this from, uh, very good. He says what this means is is what Paul is doing is given an imagery of what happened in Rome when Roman generals conquered uh, conquered uh, who they were fighting on the field of battle. These triumphant parades would happen in Rome uh, to show off that they won and how they would do this and have these parades in Rome And as part of uh, the parade, they would take their conquered captives, chain them up, and have them be part of the parade. They'd take all the spoils uh, that the the, the conquered army and put them on display. And it was this huge parade going down. The the enemies would be stripped naked and chained, and spoils of their loss would be led to the city. So this is this this is what Paul's referring to. That this is how Jesus. This is this putting to shame, to shame, meaning that Jesus ultimately on his cross and his ascension, his resurrection and his ascent to heaven, that's when he has openly put to shame the forces of evil. And what's very interesting here then is this passage here about talking about how Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. We, our church, the Lutheran Church, uh, also looks at this passage with 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. And I'll read that to you here. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteousness, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So what this is saying is that at, when Jesus died before his resurrection, as we talk about in the Apostles' Creed, remember we say, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So our, in, in our confessions, we look at this 2.15 in 1 Peter 3.18 in the church, actually way before our Lutheran confessions. This is where the church comes up with, with um, through these, that uh, Christ at his death went to hell and proclaimed victory. And this is what, what Paul's saying here too, as he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. We know at Jesus' death, that's when the victory was obtained. And that's at that point where he descended into hell. And there's some controversy. Some people believe that he went into hell to try to convert those that were down there. But that's just not what the scriptures, you guys are all shaking your head. Jesus went to hell only as a victory parade, which ties into this, this Roman, what Paul's talking about here. So this is, this is all neat, how it all fits together, that this is Jesus' victory, his victory on the cross, and then he puts those, the evil ones, to open shame. But nevertheless, um, and, and this, is, this is comforting for us, 
But even though Jesus does put these uh, evil forces to open shame, as we've, we've talked about earlier in Colossians about Paul's struggle, and then the Christian's struggle, even though Jesus has at this point put these to shame, uh, there still remains today this opportunity for these powers to attempt to harm God's people. So we do continue, continually struggle against these powers at time. But that will all end on Christ's return on the last day. But we do know that Christ's death on the cross, that was the ultimate victory. And that is how he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. Any questions on that? Does anybody, this descent into hell? Victory stuff. You can do a lot of reading on it. There's a lot of debate within Christendom about what that means, what uh, also debate on, on Christ's descent into hell. Was it just his spirit or, or was it a bodily descent? Um, we believe that the scriptures uh, maintain that it was Christ went bodily. Of course, we can't understand it. And we don't know exactly when it happened, but it happened sometime between his death on the cross and then when he was truly uh, resurrected. So very interesting stuff. Our confessions talk a lot about this in the formula of Concord, if anybody's interested in reading it further. Questions on that? Further questions? Okay, so that uh, pretty much wraps up then um, to, um, it would be C3, the fullness of Christ. Um, So now... Uh, we can get into this last section here on the main exposition and resolution of our outline, which is C4, which is entitled True Freedom. Um, so in, in just two before, we talked about true knowledge. In that section, Paul proclaims that the true knowledge is faith in Christ. Then we move to the fullness of Christ, which we just talked about, which clearly shows that Paul proclaims the divine fullness of Christ and the believer's incorporation into Christ's death and resurrection and baptism, right? And this is this fullness of Christ, which we are part of. Now, Paul says, because of this true knowledge and this fullness of Christ, what does that mean? And this is this section, true freedom. So Paul now addresses the matter um, on these heretics in Colossae, their restrictions on true freedom and, um, and, and tells the Christian what is freedom then now that we have the true knowledge in this fullness of Christ. So we'll move on here. I think what I'll do, um, I hate to do this, but I want to read just through the whole section so we can see everything in context and go back to it. So In our study Bible on page 2046, we'll start with verse 16. And if you can see, the the editors have put in there, let no one disqualify you. Um, Of course, I've entitled it uh, in other commentators, True Freedom, but it's the same thing. So Paul now talks about this. Uh, let, Let no one disqualify you. He's addressing what these heretics are doing to these Christians who are um, in and, and then Paul's going to say this isn't right and because of Christian freedom we don't have to follow all, all of these restrictions and regulations that they've come up with. So we'll read it here, 16 through 23. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through which joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, did you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So Paul doesn't hold back here. He's really swinging for the fence on this, and I think this is great. So let's look here. Then we'll start at, at two, verse uh, 16, chapter 2, 16. We'll get in this to a couple lines, and then we'll have to uh, wrap it up. I don't think we're going to be able to finish this today. But in any event, true freedom here then. What is Paul talking about? Verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now here, as I said earlier, you know, we talked about these heretics and Gnosticism, and I said we'd see more as we progress through the letter on what's going on, and now Paul is really telling us a little bit more of what's going on. So when, we, when he says stuff about food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Now this gives us some indication and some of the commentaries say that these heretics, they were Gnostics, but there could have been a Jewish element still. Some Jewish, obviously we're seeing this, Jewish elements and, and uh, Gnosticism being blended together. So we can't just say it's one or the other uh, because of Paul, what Paul is specifically mentioning here. And if you will see, Paul does mention the term Sabbath. Um, so, in, so then it's likely then the, the false teachers were advocating adherence to you know, all types of these Jewish dietary laws and observances of festivals like Passovers and ta Tabernacles. Um, but there does seem to be a non-Jewish element to these false teachings um, and, and we'll, we'll cover that here in, here in verse uh, 18. But this seems to be 16, mostly with respect uh, to the Jewish, uh, some of the Jewish practices that were going on, that were continuing to go on here at the church of Colossia. But Paul then, when he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, he is instructing his readers not to submit to the false principles that the heretics here insisted that the, were necessary for the Colossians to become perfect and escape condemnation, condemnation and full salvation. Really what Paul is saying, uh, these are all works of man, right? It's all work righteousness. And as Paul's already set up, which we just talked about, is the fullness of Christ, what Christ done. It's all gift. It's all about Christ and what Christ is doing for us. Now he's just saying because of that, this stuff is just all works righteousness. 
And these are false teaching because these do not save us following you know, regulations about what you drink or you eat or how you um, conduct certain festivals or the strict requirements of the Sabbath, that this is all man-made stuff, it's all work righteousness, and therefore don't let them pass judgment on you if you're not following these. That's what Paul is saying in verse 16. Verse 17, this is some really interesting language. It's kind of hard to interpret here, but we can do it. 17, so these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Um, So what our study note here says in Dr. Dieterding, um, that what this shadow of the things to come really talks about are some of the Old Testament events, practices, and messages, but have their full meaning and realization in Christ. So when Paul talks about these are shadows of the things to come, he is referring back to Old Testament stuff, so he understands that these historic events, people, institutions, and even messages, while having a proper part of God's plan in their own historic setting, were also types of what God would fulfill in sending his son for Jesus. So, for example, what what am I saying on this, and what is Paul saying? Let's look at um, when um, uh, when, when God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. Um, This has, um, when Jesus comes, those things that point, well, excuse me, so when God rescued the, the Israelites from Egypt, what Paul is saying is that this pointed to and was a type of God's coming rescue to the world in Jesus. So a lot of the things that happen in the Old Testament we can see as a type um, that's, that will be fulfilled in, in similar ways through Jesus. And that was what Paul is saying is that these are a shadow of the things to come. So when Jesus comes, those things that pointed to him in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Him. Therefore, Old Testament practices are not fem- sinful, but they are not the absolute, and, and they only find their completion in Christ. We have a question back there, Barry. Um, Chris. Would an example of that be like um, the blood of the Lamb? Oh, yes. Used in the Passover? Absolutely. Then being like... we. We are passed over. The death that would have come to them is also passed over us through the blood of Christ. That would be. That's actually a better example than I came up with. Yes, that's exactly it. And we see that all over the Old Testament, right? Foreshadowing Christ, and and so that's what Paul's saying him that these these Old Testament things are a shadow of the things to come. But then he says, but the substance really belongs to Christ, even though these things happen. The ultimate fulfillment then. On, on all this salvation and the redemption of Israel comes to us through Christ. And that's when we talk about substance belong to Christ. It's Christ's incarnation and Christ works. So thus, to seek God's salvation and ways to worship Him in the Old Testament festivals and dietary regulations, as the Colossians were apparently being enticed to do, was to misuse those portions of the Hebrew Scripture. Continuing to abide by Old Testament festivals and dietary restrictions and other regulations, which we know that there's over 600 in the Old Testament, 
prevented the gospel pointing, pointing to Christ and what he has done for our salvation. So really what they were attempting, these heretics were attempting to justify themselves only by the law and these rituals and these regulations. And they were, they were thinking that that is what led them to their salvation. And of course, as Paul continues to say, and he says here, but really the substance belonged to Christ. It's all about Christ. Um, any questions or anything? That was a great... Uh, uh, I, I'm just kind of reflecting on, uh, let me say it maybe bluntly, why did it take 1,500 years for the church... Uh, to realize the uh, difference uh, from what the Bible was saying and what the practices of the church were. I mean, it, it's, and, and I could just maybe answer that, that only like one half of 1% of the people could read, you know, the Latin and the Vulgate or whatever, the, and the other people had to have that read to them in the church. I, yeah. Is that one answer? But then Martin Luther, who was part of the church, was raised up by God, I guess, to bring forth. You know, it's, we're saved not of our own works, but of, of God alone through this mystery that's now revealed. I mean, but 1,500 years is a long time. Yeah, but I think that we could also say that Paul here is saying all this, and they were preaching it back then, the early church. Really, the early church fathers did too, and then there was a point in history um, this where the, the, the Roman Catholic Church uh, kind of moves off of it. And then what Luther did, Luther and Melanchthon always argued that we're not coming in to, to bring in some new thing. We're just trying to bring the church back to where it was. So, yeah, but you are right. There was a deviation from this for some time, and then uh, it had to be brought back. And we, we can thank Luther for that's what started that Reformation. Was really wasn't bringing in new beliefs. It was just bringing the church back to what they believed and what Paul taught and was teaching to the Colossians at that time. So we have that same challenge now in, Absolutely. in some of the denominations who are going off the rails and not adhering being like the Bereans, searching the scriptures for the truth, right? I mean, yeah. And it, it, what's kind of shocking is as we go through this, I mean, this isn't, this is pretty clear stuff, what Paul teaches about on works and against work righteousness. So, yeah, it is a mystery, right? But um, praise God that the, we our, our confessions are the Lord's doctrines and the, that we as uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans take this stuff very seriously and believe what it says. And it's pretty clear. So, but great point. Okay, so I think probably on that, that was a good uh, way to end. Um, well, next time we will take up um, verse 18 and try to get through this section and then get on to the next section. So thank you all very much and the Lord be with you.